welcome to the Momus Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. This episode is the first of a new series we're introducing called Criticism in Conversation. These episodes put two interesting people in a room to hash an issue out. Whether it takes the form of a disagreement or a shared enthusiasm, the series promotes the looseness and vibrancy of criticism in conversation. What follows is a discussion initiated by Catherine G. Wagley, a contributing editor for MoMA's based in LA. Catherine spoke to the executive editor of Artnet News, Julia Halperin, about the sometimes mutual and often blurred relationship between art journalism and art criticism. Here's Catherine to introduce their conversation. Back in 1966, Jerome Hausman wrote that art criticism should deal directly with the art object being criticized. The politics, personality, and polemics of the artist, his dealer, and his patron are peripheral to the job of criticism. Journalism, on the other hand, is engaged with reporting of the news or the commenting on events. Is this true? Where does art criticism meet reporting? When is it helpful or necessary for a critic to do some digging, or is it? I asked Julia Halperin to talk to me about this because while she considers herself primarily a journalist, Her reporting has influenced my criticism. Yeah, so I would love to talk a little bit about that article you published for the art newspaper um, that you said was your first solely data-based project um, on gallery representations in museums. What prompted you to want to do that? I had been working at the art newspaper for a few years, and they're known for putting out this annual um, museum attendance report, which, you know, surveys 500 museums around the world and the attendance of their various exhibitions. Um, And that had been going on for, I don't know, 15 years or something before I started. Um, But I realized that they had, because of that, all of this data from over the years that they hadn't actually looked at any other way. It was just reporting the same, you know, list of exhibitions and attendance. But what they actually had as a result of that was an incredible trove of shows that museums around the world had done over the last, you know, more than a decade. Um, And that was searchable. And that's something that, that I realized you could use to sort of find trends and shifts. Um, and and so that was sort of where the initial idea came from to look at the overlap between artists who had gotten major museum shows in the US and artists who are represented by the five biggest galleries in the US. Um, and and at the time it was, it was the article that made me the most nervous <laughs> that I've ever written. It was like the one I stayed up the latest freaking out about, um, but it was, also in the end the one that I felt the most confident standing behind because it was based on solid numbers and data um and so to me yeah it felt like the opposite of criticism in a way because I just did the grunt work to pull together the information and then we could have a conversation based on that right right yeah it's funny when I first I worked with uh a sort of data whiz on the project and when he gave me the the final number back at the beginning I was sort of 
disappointed. Like, I thought it was kind of an anticlimax. I was like, oh, only whatever. It's like almost a, th a third. Like, that's not that much. Uh, and it was only when I told the editor at the time the number and she immediately said, no, this is a big deal. Uh, and so it's, it is interesting that you still kind of need somebody else mm -hmm. a little bit outside to recognize that. And then now, I mean, yeah, I can't, I don't, I can't not notice it when I see exhibition programs. Which then like leads me to the, you know, that question that I've been grappling with and it's why we're having this conversation is like, where do these things overlap? Cause as a critic, I mean, I do a lot of reporting, but I also write criticism as often. It, um, and it's really hard not to want to talk about this stuff. And I think maybe that you need to talk about this stuff when you're reviewing shows. Um, but it's interesting that this seemed like to you the furthest from criticism because it really was just this um, number crunching. But for me, it now influences, you know, things like this influence criticism so much. Because I think if I'm like looking at a show by one of these artists or if I'm you know, thinking about writing about a Kathy Opie show at MoCA and she's shown twice there in the last few years and she's also on the board and she's also represented by Regan and she's also um, faculty at UCLA. It seems like maybe I need to acknowledge all those things in criticism. I've become really suspicious of overrepresentation of a small group of people. And it's felt like to not acknowledge that when writing criticism is like to participate in some sort of collective willful ignorance of how um, how the art world's conversation about inclusion is kind of um, a myth or hypocritical, like that we're not actually doing the things we need to do to be more inclusive. I guess I'm a little bit conflicted about it, too, because I think that sometimes these preoccupations keep me from really looking closely and deeply at the art. That's interesting. I mean, I was I was thinking about it before we talked and I was thinking, like, sort of what what is the difference between criticism and journalism or what I want from them? Mm -hmm. um, and I think what I settled on is I don't think the difference is subjective versus objective, because I think journalism is super subjective mm -hmm. for tons of reasons. But I think for me, like I want a review or a piece of criticism to tell me whether something is good or bad in really, over, in, to be very oversimplistic about it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's my decision whether I agree or not, but I want to know what the critic thinks about, you know, the quality of something, whether it should exist, all of that. And as a journalist, I see my role as sort of the exact opposite. Like, I don't think that readers care what I think. I find it comforting mm -hmm. <laughs> that I don't have to decide. Uh, and I work kind of hard to compartmentalize that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I see it as my job to, like, do the grunt work of talking to as many people as I can and gathering as much information as I can and presenting it, you know, as honestly as possible. Not not an opinion you're putting forth into the world, but like thorough information gathering and reporting and um, and digging through this question. Yeah, I would feel so. I mean, it's why I'm so glad I'm not a critic. I would feel so much more vulnerable. I think putting that out there because it's 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 your ideas, mm -hmm. whereas all I have to do is just 
like brute force my way into something that seems true. Um, and that feels a lot easier yeah. <laughs> in a way. Interesting. I I don't, I have a different position because I, I learned, I think I said this in my email to you, that I learned to be a reporter through art criticism. Like I started reviewing for, you know, really tiny um, websites and publications when I was still a grad student. And then um, mostly that's what I did and wanted to do when I would occasionally get these, you know, profile projects where I would just interview one artist and kind of write about their work. Um, and there wasn't a lot of reporting involved in that, but I learned to report kind of because I had questions that I were coming up in the, when I was reading the way certain artworks or certain spaces were talked about, you know, how art, art was exhibited in certain geographical locations or how that affected, um, how like having an exhibition of this kind in this neighborhood differed from having the same exhibition in a different neighborhood. And I think like in the end, I, I became a reporter and that's, uh, and but but I guess in my mind, it's always a little blurry because I came to it in, in trying to think about how to like honestly review art exhibition or talk about art in context. You know, I'm thinking about, we just ran a review of the, um, it's the sequel to the Art in the Streets show in LA. Um, Beyond the Streets, that's what it was. Um, and I was not the primary editor, but I did kind of a final read of it. And I remember asking, you know, but who's paying for this? Um, You know, where we don't necessarily say who's sponsoring it. We don't say why it exists. And to me that even though it was a review, my sort of journalism bells were ringing because for one reason, street art and nomadic art shows are so often organized by real estate companies Mm -hmm. for reasons in addition to beautifying spaces. Um, And so it felt to me like that was a really gaping hole in in that version of the story. And so, and it would have informed the way that I read the rest of the analysis, even though the analysis was of course more about the work uh, than the architecture around it and the way it was being presented. And I guess the thing I still haven't totally figured out is how much readers care about the inside baseball. Right. Um, I think in a situation where, you know, the reason the show exists is for something other than, you know, presenting art because it's the mission of a, of a mm-hmm. museum or an institution, then I think it it should matter and it's important to communicate. I am less confident that sort of the the politics of, a, of whatever's happening in a museum in any given moment or the specifics of, you know, donor agreements and things like that are important to readers in a broader way. Right. But at MoCA, you know, things could be going crazy and and on the board, but the shows are still, you know, often being experienced at face value as museum shows. Right. And I think sometimes that's okay. You know, like if, if, if a show or, or an artist's work merits, evaluation on its own that its association with a troubled institution shouldn't necessarily dilute that um but on the other hand i think when when a show is sort of shaped by those outside forces more forcefully like you know in a case where a museum is showing a donor's collection or in a situation like some of the contemporary shows at the met when all of the debate around 
contemporary art at the Met was raging. Mm -hmm. In those moments, I think it's really important to acknowledge what's happening outside of the confines of the walls of the show. Mm -hmm. Maybe also um, it's worth talking about like what criticism is exciting right now. Which is a question I think we asked about a lot. I think that part of the reason I'm so interested in reporting is like to an extent, uh, and the and the overlap. Like journalism feels so important to me right now. Like there's so many things I want to see dug into, in the art world and outside of it. But at the same time, I think criticism is so valuable. Uh, but but sometimes it feels very staid when the same formulas that have been applied for a long time are applied to exhibitions, like that objectivity or that false objectivity that you're just looking at the art. Maybe it's, maybe it's starting to feel less relevant to me as a reader. I think that's true as a reader. I mean, I think, and also as an editor, as someone who works for a publication, I think criticism is is in a tough spot right now. I mean, from the, I can speak to it, you know, from the like gross and crude practicalities of, of being an editor at a publication where we do have to hit certain traffic targets mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, and, you know, would that that were not reality, but it is. Uh, and, and in those cases, I mean, reviews do not perform well traffic wise. Mm-hmm. Um, people do not read reviews anywhere near at the same level that they read, you know, news. Right. Um, or features or, or basically any other kind of writing. Um, and so the challenge for us is to figure out with, you know, limited resources, how do we continue to showcase, you know, criticism that that matters to people? Mm-hmm. Um, because on the one hand, traffic is the, like, thing that looms over me and it's something that I wish we didn't have to deal with. But on the other hand, it does also indicate what people respond to um, and what people care about. And, and so we have been experimenting under a lot under the auspices of Ben Davis, who's our chief critic, um, sort of different forms and, and what works. Um, and Ben actually did the first of what may become a series of columns where he sort of looks at an exhibition um, through the lens of other sort of pop cultural happenings mm-hmm. Um, at the same moment. So he did a piece last week where he looked at the Tony Koch show at Green Naftali and also kind of talked about it in the context of the new This Is America Childish Gambino video and this like weirdly viral um, paparazzi photo of Joe Jonas and his girlfriend, (laughs) which seems like really cynical. Um, But the way I talked about it was it's like if you're a parent and you're pureeing vegetables into pasta sauce uh and you're like trying to like sneak it in you want your kids to eat their vegetables but you don't want them to realize it um but but I think the way that he thinks about it although I don't want to speak for him is is just that people aren't reading criticism the same way that they used to you know and how can we argue for Mm -hmm. certain works importance by putting it in the context of of what people are consuming in pop culture right now. Um, It's something that we think about a lot. And, you know, as an editor, for me, a review needs to kind of say something broader about where we are or what artists are dealing Mm -hmm. with or, you know, what a certain group of artists are thinking about 
usually. Or as a reader, I like, I also like reviews that sort of explain why an artist or body of work I never fully understood matters or is important. Mm-hmm. Um, we ran a review by a writer who works with us named Taylor Defoe about the Zoe Leonard show mm-hmm. that I edited. Uh, and I never, I never really got her. Uh, I just didn't, I didn't understand what tied the work together. I hadn't seen enough of it. I didn't understand what she was doing. And so that for me was a great example of, of a piece of writing where I came out of it saying, you know, oh, these are, these are the things she's thinking about. This is how it speaks to contemporary culture. And now I understand. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think as a, as a reader, I feel the same way. And also there's a, I mean, I don't read criticism. I don't read it to learn about whether or not to go see a particular show for the most part, because I'm going to see the shows I'm going to see. Um, mm-hmm. But I do read it as a sort of a, you know, as somebody who's really interested in the craft of it and also uh, interested in, understanding what other what other ways I could be thinking about the artists who are working now and who either I'm particularly interested in or who a lot of people seem to be interested in or the market seems to be interested in and why is that I agree I mean I think something that distinguishes art criticism from you know food restaurant reviews or movie reviews or reviews of plays maybe more restaurant and play reviews because you have to pay money to go to those, like a lot of money. Um, I'll read those before I go to decide if I want to, you know, patronize that establishment or go see that play because it's expensive. Um, I mean, museums for the most part are comparatively inexpensive, if not free. And, you know, for us, because we have press passes, they are free. Um, And so, yeah, I'm not going to, it's not going to change my, decision about what shows to see necessarily but sometimes I read it I also like you know criticism if I leave somewhere and I feel a certain way but I'm not sure why um I think really good critics can help crystallize my reaction like I think about Roberta Smith's review of the Met Breuer uh the inaugural Met Breuer show Unfinished which was like this compendium of art from the early Renaissance to present day. And it was all like various definitions of unfinished. And I left just feeling like really confused um, and not sure how I felt about it. And and I remember reading her review like two days later and just that like relief that you feel when someone articulated something that you couldn't explain. <laughs> um, and that's the best feeling, although I don't know if that's like a good thing that I just look for somehow confirmation. <laughs> I like long for critical pieces that can distill what a critic is seeing and say, you know, this is one way that, you know, a particular way that artists are looking at the world or a particular, you know, style that artists are pursuing and why are they, why might they be doing that? Or this subgroup is doing X thing. I mean, I don't, I honestly don't see enough art to feel confident to tie those threads together. And I, I'm sort of constantly hoping that somebody will will do it for me that will say, you know, this is 
I mean, I'm thinking of zombie formalism because that's the kind of most well-known recent one, but, um, but someone who can help me kind of make sense of the massive volume of art that is out there in the world right. and kind of make, draw some line connecting the dots a little bit, um, that's something I don't necessarily, maybe I don't know where to look, um, but it's not something that I feel like I see very much. So I'm really curious because when I'm reporting a story, I have like a pretty rigid now process of what that looks like for me. I'm curious about when you're reviewing a show, like do you have a kind of set research and writing and and work process that you kind of repeat every time uh yeah i think it's more i think that i also with reporting have a much clearer process like uh and with reviewing it's a little more intuitive but but um i think the first phase is with both reporting and criticism is information gathering like the visual information of seeing the show and then the information of um, when I first started, I didn't read wall labels or press releases. And now since I've become a lot more interested in the platforms and the framing of things and why they're framed in the way they are and why they're shown where they're shown, I always read the press releases and the wall labels and um, catalog essays if I have the time or if it's a big enough project. And then I think I go from there to try and figure out what kind of story I can tell that gets at these different observations that have felt most important. Partly, I mean, unless unless there's a strong negative or positive reaction, which I guess is hmm. not the norm. Like usually it's somewhere in between. Like there are good things about the show and there are problematic things. And it takes me a little while of going back and forth to figure out which ones to privilege. Yeah, that it feels like it's kind of an excavation process of figuring out how how to, what my ideas actually are and how they relate to the ideas that have been expressed already about the show or how they relate to the way the show has been framed and whether or not in the end those things are relevant because I think sometimes they are and sometimes they're not or sometimes I get obsessed with them and they're really not that relevant. Like I don't <laughs> need to talk about the different ways in which an artist's show has been reviewed before. I think I also have a really, like I do, I do a lot of, um, I do this with reporting too, um, that I s move back and forth between handwritten and when, when I'm actually writing handwritten and typing because somehow I feel Do like... Do you? Yeah, because I feel like I can take... Really? More risks with ideas if I'm not on the computer. I mean, I... The only thing that even gets close to that is that I do... If I have a story where I've done a ton of interviews, mm -hmm. um, you know, I will print all my notes out mm -hmm. and then read them through and kind of if certain ideas come up multiple times in conversations with multiple mm -hmm. people... I'll sort of write in the margins, you know, like, oh, this has to do with, you know, conflict of interest about this, or this has to do yeah. with the history of, you know, patronage here. And so I'll write those next to the pair, next to the sort of paragraphs where they're mentioned. And then at the end, you can kind of look at this stack of papers and see, okay, a lot of people are talking about this issue, or, you know, a couple of people talk about this issue, and then it helps you kind of get going yeah. and, and structure it and figure out what's the most important um, but I could, it's so funny. I don't think my, I could write quickly enough to catch up with my brain, but also I just feel like I'm, I rewrite so much. Mm -hmm. I can barely get through a sentence without rewriting it, That that would drive me insane. Oh, funny. I feel like it allows me to rewrite. Like there's the back and forth 
makes me feel uh, like things are less precious. Like there's like, cause if you're writing something by hand, you know, that's like, that is never going to be what you send to your editor. Like, mm. like it's so far. That's, so, that's really interesting to me. But I'm curious about your, like your reporting. It's so sh- like, it does feel like you, you really honed this craft. And, and I, I've been like, I love reading your stuff. I loved the, and quoted from the piece you did on Helen Mosworth's firing or resignation from MoCA that kind of fleshed out the the dynamics around the museum in the last few years a few times and I quoted it a few times too so I would be curious to know what your what your approach is yeah I mean for for pieces like that that are sort of dealing with difficult things that nobody really wants to talk about um I will usually I mean first of all for I think I talked to maybe nine people for that story Mm -hmm. and for so to get those I think I have a list of people I reached out to that's maybe like 30, 35 people. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of it is just literally <laughs> just like cold calling and sending out a million emails um, because you know for every like five you send, you might get one person to reply to you. Um, but usually with with things like that where I'm sort of trying to f- figure out the answer to an opaque question mm-hmm. um you know I'll start with with people I know and trust who may not be very close to the issue but who I know will kind of tell me the truth of what they know um and so I I start with with them kind of from the furthest outside mm-hmm. and then I I try to work my way in um so those people I can just you know text or call them and and say you know what have you heard what do you think about this um and then you try to get like one layer further in, whether it's, you know, people telling me, oh, this person, you know, might know something or looking on the list of, you know, people who have who have donated to a given museum or who might be associated, who I have contact info for. Then you get to the stage where you're like in a smaller concentric circle and you have to email people who are more directly involved who probably don't want to talk to you. Uh, and so you send them basically everything you've gathered so far. Um, and at that point, my goal, which I communicate, mm-hmm. is this is what I know. Like, I just want to figure out whether this is accurate, mm-hmm. whether this is true. Um, and that is genuinely my goal. Um, I'm not trying yeah. to trick people. I just, I, this is as far as I've gotten. Some of this is probably not true. Some of it is true. Like, what can you tell me? And I have found people really respond to that um, because they don't feel like you're trying to trick them into telling you something that you don't already know, but that your your intentions are genuinely to to figure out what's going on and to communicate it in, in sort of the most faithful way possible. Um, and so that is generally how I think about it. It is also kind of an excavation in a way. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's just for me been a matter of like, like you just brute force your way through, like you just Mm -hmm. keep trying until you hear people repeat things. Um, and once I have people, once I've heard the same thing from three people who don't, who may not know each other, Mm -hmm. that's when I feel comfortable putting it into a story. 
Um, so I've been lucky in the jobs I've had, first at the art newspaper and then here, that in both cases, because of the way my job is set up or because of the way that the publication is set up, um, I, I do, there are certain stories, not all the time, but sometimes I can take the luxury of just taking the time. Right. Um, so with that piece for the art newspaper, you know, I started working on that piece in January and it was published in April. Um, and I spent almost two weeks just working on the data with help mm-hmm. pretty much full time. Um, and that's something I just would have never been able to do at an, at another publication that, that had the pressure to publish more than we did. Um, and at Artnet, you know, I, I have a certain amount that I have to edit, but I'm not under, because I'm not technically a writer. Um, I don't have, you know, it's quotas that I have to fill or, or a certain number of stories that I have to produce. Mm -hmm. And so... I can kind of take my my time on things when I want to. And so that, I think, makes a big difference. But most jobs are not set up that way. Um, and so, and most people aren't trained that way. Um, I mean, I was lucky in that the art newspaper does put a lot of emphasis on giving people that kind of really rigorous training. Um, but I think a lot of art journalists maybe don't go through that that same kind of process. Right. No, I mean, I was lucky, I think, because I I wasn't, I, I mean, I, I was writing about art for the LA Weekly and there were a lot of people there who were trained reporters. So when I was starting to ask questions about property records or try to figure out how to get, you know, which city department do you go to if you want this, there were people there who could tell me I wondered how you learned to do that because, like, property records are really hard. I don't, I still don't understand really how to master yeah, them. Yeah, it was trial and error and sending emails to the managing editor at the weekly. Uh, I still don't know. Like, still, when there are things I want to figure out, I have to kind of just figure out how to figure them out before I can actually learn. Like, I had to, I'm writing this thing about Doug Christmas, who owned Ace Gallery and has gone bankrupt many times and now finally lost the gallery. It's now being run by a bankruptcy trustee and, um, for that, I had to learn about, I didn't know about bankruptcy court, or I didn't know how to get the, that information. And um, yeah, so, so I guess it takes longer for me each time I do something like that than it would for somebody who has that background. But I, I figure it out. And it's time consuming. Like that was something I didn't realize until I started doing that is how crazy it is to do this on the budgets of art magazines. Yeah, it's also expensive. Mm-hmm. It's really expensive. I mean, the piece for the art newspaper, we paid a data analyst to like actually run, you know, he wrote a program that analyzed the data we pulled together. Um, and he's the one who taught me, you know, how to organize it in a way that he could analyze. Um, we had a researcher who helped. And so, I mean, that's, I don't, like that is, the more I think about it, the crazier that is. Um, because I can't really think of a, a publication now that would necessarily do that, um, even maybe something like the Times or like a big national paper, just because I don't know that they necessarily think that that those questions are worth putting that kind of resources into when they have like real pressing political issues to 
right. delve into, uh, which is fair. Um, but I just, the, as, as I'm talking about it, the more I realize, like, it's crazy that that even happened in the first place because it did, I didn't do it alone and I couldn't have. I mean, it takes so many people to pull that kind of stuff off mm-hmm. and it's increasingly impractical. Right. And yeah, and if you are working on something that has legal issues involved, like I got a cease and desist order from a lawyer. And so I needed to have, um, luckily in the piece where that happened, I was working for a publication that had a lawyer on retainer. But if I hadn't, like, what would I have done? I don't know. I know. And I mean, it's true. And I deal with that stuff a lot more now in my you know, capacity as executive editor than I ever did in any other jobs I've had. And so now I think, you know, when I'm on the phone with a lawyer, I'm just thinking also about like how much it's going to cost yeah. us. And like, that's part of our budget that we're using. Uh, and so it is this sort of like double think of when we're thinking about a story, we do have to think about, you know, is this something that we want to invest the resources into legally, like that we're going to have to pay a lawyer to look at it or we're going to have to pay a lawyer to, to defend it. Right. And sometimes the answer is yes. Um, you know, in the case of the coverage that we did on Night Landis Men um, that Rachel Corbett wrote and, and I edited, you know, the answer was yes. But sometimes the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which then like is that question too of like, which I guess is true. It's not just an art world problem. Like it happens in every other field. There are stories that just don't get told because um, while they are important, they're not important enough to justify I mean, resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as a freelancer, I deal with that a lot. Like often I'm asking myself, is this worth it? There are stories I took on. Like I, I did a reported story that I ended up getting paid $500 for that took me that involved like talking to detectives and like digging through property records. And, and I decided that it was worth it to me to tell that story, even though I was kind of, you know, what I, what I got paid ended up being like a, you know, totally not like if I'd done the math, I'm sure I would have gotten like $2 an hour or something. Yeah. Um, But I wanted to do it, but sometimes I don't want to do it. Or sometimes I sign on for things. And once I'm doing the work, I'm like, Oh, I know this is, this wasn't worth it for me. Uh, Cause I'm footing the bill of it basically. Cause I'm not going to get paid by the publication. Yeah. For the quantity of work I'm doing. And I mean, it makes me think too about sort of like, what role do critics play, you know, with this issue? Like, I think about how, um, I was thinking before we got on the line about how there were, I feel like there are critics who sort of sounded the alarm about problematic things when journalism wasn't necessarily doing it or wasn't doing it as well. Like, I think about the stuff that Philip Kennicott um, wrote about the Cosby, the show of the Cosby collection at the Smithsonian African Art Museum mm-hmm. or, you know, things that, he and other critics wrote about the censorship in the hide and seek show at the portrait gallery. Mm-hmm. And like, those were examples where I felt like critics were more important in the moment often than journalists were because, you know, journalists are both kind of like chained to the appearance of objectivity and, mm-hmm. and, but also covering kind of like minor advancements in the story as it happens. Um, whereas, critics can kind of step back and say, hey, wait, like this tiny thing happened, but as a whole, this is an insane thing that's very problematic for X number of reasons. Right. Um, and so I, I do think that whether it's for the reasons we were just talking about or, or others, that there have been moments where 
the voice of the critic has been like the one that endures in like moments of crisis in art or in the art world. Yeah. We'd like to thank the Canada Council for the Arts new chapter grant for its support in making this podcast first season possible. Momus the Podcast is edited by Angela Shackle and co-produced and co-hosted by myself and Lauren Wetmore. We would like to thank our composer, Kyle McCrea, for his original music. And thank you to Catherine G. Wagley and Julia Halpern for contributing to episode one of our new series, Criticism in Conversation.